Hello and welcome. My name is Nick Davies and I'm a Programme Director at the Institute for Government. On behalf of the Institute and Serco, who have kindly partnered with us on this event, thank you very much for joining us for this discussion on the future of government outsourcing. Government contracting is a topic that the Institute has done a huge amount of work on over the years, so I'm delighted uh, that we're able to host this discussion today. The government spends tens of billions of pounds a year on services delivered by external suppliers. Uh, these private and voluntary sector organisations provide everything from waste collection and catering through to IT, healthcare and prisons. Despite its widespread use, or indeed perhaps because of its widespread use, outsourcing in the UK has come under substantial scrutiny due to a number of high profile failures over the years. Labour has pledged to oversee the biggest wave of insourcing in a generation, uh, while the government is just about to pass a new procurement act with the goal of creating a simpler, more transparent system following the UK's exit from the EU. Uh, so what role should uh, the private sector and voluntary sector play in the delivery of public services? What impact do insourcing and outsourcing have on the cost and quality of public services? What impact will the Procurement Act have on outsourcing? How can the transparency of outsourcing be improved? And how can suppliers be held to account more effectively by the government and by the public? To discuss these questions and more, I'm delighted to be joined by Baroness Lucy Neville-Rolf, Minister of State at the Cabinet Office, uh, Anthony Kirby, uh, CEO of Serco UK and Europe, Sarah Viber, the CEO of the National Council for Voluntary Organisations, uh, and possibly uh, Brendan Clark-Smith, uh, MP, a former Minister in the Cabinet Office. Um, each of our speakers will make opening remarks. I will then ask a few questions of the panel before opening it up to the audience. We will be live tweeting from the at IFG events account using the hashtags uh, IFGCons23 and hashtag CPC23. Uh, and I encourage you to tweet as well. Right, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Baroness Lucy Neverwolf for opening remarks. Well, thank you so much. And good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, congratulations to the brave few who've made it. Um, now, I think I am here um, because one of my main duties over the last year has been to take the procurement bill through. So it started unusually in the House of Lords. And I think it's fair to say that it's an extremely complicated matter. The bill simplifies and improves a complex EU regime. Now, procurement is worth three hundred billion pounds in total. That's goods, services, construction works, a panoply of things across the public sector. Um, so, purchased by government, local authorities, and so on, each year. So, there's a lot of potential and growth. Now, outsourcing is a specific form of procurement. Um, it's our subject today, um, but I think it's important to see it in the overall context. But before I come on to uh, outsourcing, let me tell you my joke for today. <laughs> so I used to work for Prime Minister John Major, and I met him socially last month, surprise, surprise, at Lord's. Um, I told him that I would be speaking at the party conference about procurement, which I did earlier on in this week's proceedings. He expressed surprise with the suggestion that he thought I'd always been a respectable wife and mother. 
so much for doublantons, and perhaps this is the way we get procurement through to the masses. Turning now to outsourcing. I believe that the public sector should take a balanced approach to outsourcing, so balance in everything. Uh, that, cons that considers that efficiency and quality of public services and, and meets needs better. So the key to outsourcing, as I've said, is the quality of the outsourcing. And that means things like good oversight of contracts, so that we, and then ensuring we train officials to negotiate well, so agreements are well written. So as I've just been discussing um, with Anthony, um, the risk reward balance is, is sensible. When done well, outsourcing can allow contractors to take account of national strategic priorities, uh, and that includes job creation, supplier resilience, above all the things I'm passionate about, driving innovation. Um, and that's what the procurement bill is, is designed to allow. Crucially, and this is an area I'm very passionate about, the bill will make it easier for SMEs and indeed small voluntary enterprises to compete for more government contracts. This will transform how outsourcing happens and how uh, gov who government is able to outsource to. I mean, S SMEs make up 99, over 99%, probably 99.9% .9 if you think about the sums, of all UK businesses. And we're absolutely determined that they should have a bigger share of this pie I've described, the 300 billion. So sim the simpler rules that were introduced and take advantage of freedoms that Britain now has because we're not in the EU and therefore constrained by their 350 regulations, but it can also, I think, strengthen the government's ability to exclude suppliers who have uh, previously underperformed on government work. The bill also confirms that value for money remains paramount during contracting and makes procurement more open and transparent. And under the new system, everyone will have access to much more public procurement data. You know, there's going to be a very substantial online presence meaning people will be able to scrutinize spending decisions, look forward to new opportunities better, and so that one's going to have a more open and transparent market. And outsourcing, of course, isn't just domestic. I know Serco operate right around the world. Our new regime will maintain compliance with our international obligations, which is important, including the WTO's agreement on government procurement. Uh, and that gives British businesses guaranteed access to 1.3 trillion uh, in public profit opportunities overseas. So you need to think of that opportunity when you're looking at the domestic regime. I'd like to end, if I might, with a historical reflection. So when we introduced outsourcing and contracting out of public services in the 90s, it was to inject more competition and improve value for money. And sometimes private operators were brought in alongside the public ones, uh, like bringing in a few private prisons to spur reform of the rest of the prison estate. Now outsourcing is an everyday occurrence. So the conservative future is to ensure that all contracts are efficient, are well run, avoid conflicts of interest, champion prompt payment, and don't allow monopolistic suppliers, many from overseas, to feather their nests. Instead, we need less bureaucracy, 
more transparency, sunlight, and more contracts going to small and often local businesses um, and enterprises, alongside, of course, the professionals like Serco, who we'll continue to need on some of the big and complex contracts that, that, that matter. So, so that's my vision for outsourcing, but I very much look forward to the debate and to the questions. <coughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, next up, we'll have Anthony Kirby. Thanks, Nick. So um, outsourcing isn't a, isn't a recent thing, and as it happens, it, it's in every walk of our life. So the private sector has a long history of providing public services on behalf of governments of all, of all stripes and colours, not just here in the UK, as the Baroness said, but around the world. In fact, Serco's first contract in the UK was at RAF Filingdales, and we've just celebrated our 60th anniversary of supporting the RAF at Filingdales um, as a true business-to-government partner. Today, the vast majority of the 30,000 colleagues that I have the privilege of working with in the, both the UK and Europe um, do some fantastic things on a daily basis, 24-7 uh, 365 days of the year and their commitment to helping people most uh, the most vulnerable times in their lives is superb to see and really humbling to be part of. And day in, day out, those people <laughs> delivering those services do that to achieve some positive impacts and really trying to strive for a better tomorrow. I think their contribution and our commitment is often missed in the public perception and the narrative that surrounds the entire debate about outsourcing. And we often hear about the failures as Nick alluded to. But I think part of the, part of the issue there is the fault on outsourcers themselves. We don't, I don't, often talk about the positive work that we do or the value that we can bring to governments and citizens who are ultimately paying for those services through their taxation. There is overwhelming evidence, though, of the positive role that the private sector has played in the delivery of public services, whether it's technology and defence, innovation in the custodial estate, environmental improvements in waste management, or lifeline services such as Northlink ferries connecting the outer highlands and islands to the, to the mainland up in Scotland. The private sector brings together international experience, innovation, investment capability and capacity, and local know-how to drive better impactful outcomes and social value at local level. We welcome the steps in the procurement bill to simplify the system, to make it more transparent and enable greater flexibility. But there are areas though where we believe that the government can go further. We welcome the plans to improve transparency and accountability, as I said, but our view is that services provided by both the public and the private sector should be compared like for like in terms of value for money, innovation and service delivery side by side. We also want to see more competition. Too often there are too few suppliers bidding for government contracts because of the perceived unfair or unbalanced level of risk that often sits with a supplier, making it more difficult for SMEs to bid for large contracts. So we welcome the steps by the government to enable greater opportunities for SMEs. And Sarah and I were talking about what more we can do to, to help SMEs trying to bid for, for new contracts or existing contracts. But bids often take a long time. They're financially onerous for small and medium-sized businesses. And perhaps that's right, because fundamentally the government is spending taxpayers' money. 
but small SMEs don't always have the ability or the capacity to sustain bid and mobilization costs as well as some of the big prime contractors are able to do. But a lot of innovation comes from SMEs and startups. Organisations like mine, I feel, have an important role to play to help SMEs. Last year, we spent hundreds of millions of pounds with SMEs, both in the UK and around the world, whether it's in the US with small business set aside. And I'm committed as the CEO of this business to continue to work with SMEs, to continue to pay them on time, to continue to have the best performance of paid on time out of our sector um, in this country. And the, you know, the thing that you see with SMEs, the time from ideation to implementation is where we come up against a bit of a challenge, whether it's in this country or other countries around the world, where, where an SME has a great idea for innovation, but we'll stifle it for three years by putting them through quite a long and laborious and bureaucratic, and bureaucratic recruitment uh, procurement process. Whereas we feel we've got the ability to help incubate some of that, whether it's here or abroad, and then bring back some of that innovation to benefit the, the UK and taxpayers. But bringing it back to transparency quickly, let me be very, very clear. We view it as a good thing, but we do need to be conscious of the behaviours that it could drive. So, you know, I, I think namely of a, a failure, meaning that governments will want to be more prescriptive on the inputs and the KPIs rather than focusing on the outcomes, which may take three or four years to see the outcomes, whether it's rehabilitation of offenders, whether it's reduction in carbon, regardless of what it is, it may be beyond the current fiscal spending envelope. The final point, final point I want to make is about government being a better customer in the market for procuring services. And we have seen some huge improvements over the last three to four years about them becoming, in clear, becoming more clear on the outcomes that they want to achieve from the services that they're choosing to buy. So in short, outsources about developing that partnership between government and its suppliers, in my view, moving away from the tactical focus on bids to talk about the delivery of policy objectives, value for money, innovation and quality. So I want Serco to be leading that change, leading that charge with governments both here in the UK and the other 20 odd countries that we operate in around the world. But I realise there's a lot there's a lot in that and because I'm from Liverpool I've probably talked quite fast. Um, so if there's anything that you if there's anything that you want me to clarify please do uh, please do ask but I'm um, conscious we want to get the floor open to questions so um nick thank you very much thank you very much and our probably final speaker uh, sarah viber thanks nick um so charities deliver 15.8 billion pounds worth of public services um, and i was going to just start by talking a little bit about what types of services services it is that charities are delivering so they're delivering things like specialist domestic violence services um, they're, they're running youth centres, they're providing alternative education for young people, um, they're providing counselling for birth parents whose children have been adopted. So really important to stress up front that services that support people need to be treated differently in the procurement process to um, buying IT support. Um, I'm talking about services that are centred around people and that have to respond to people's individual needs and people's changing needs um, in order to be successful. Um, and of course, this is what charities do so well. Um, they're often small and local. Um, they know the people in their communities. They're embedded in those communities with really deep connections. Um, and what that means is they can respond quickly. They can respond flexibly um, as needs change over time. 
Um, they also often engage volunteers in service delivery. Um, and what's really important about that is those volunteers are often from the communities um, that they are working with, which means they've got this kind of bridge building role. So breaking down barriers that often exist between public services and communities. Um, and the other thing that charities can do is be is work across the boundaries of statutory services. Um, so really vital role that charities play in the delivery of many public services. Um, but the problem is charities are often treated as um, the cheapest alternative or the last ditch safety net. Um, and that's sometimes because commissioners know that we won't walk away um, if it means that people have nowhere to turn. Um, and what we're seeing now is that grants and contracts um, for charities to deliver public services are increasingly underfunded. Um, so we recently surveyed um, 300 um, voluntary organisations about the services they're delivering. Um, and firstly, what we found is, well, what we already knew, this is not a new problem. Um, two in five organisations said the value of their contracts has never covered the true cost of delivering their services. Um, but of course, inflation has peaked at 11%. Um, and what we are seeing now is a crisis in public services. So four in five charities told us that they're now subsidising public services with charitable funding, um, either through using their donations or using their reserves um, to plug the gaps in the funding that they're getting from government. And what this is meaning is um, charities are having to hand back contracts, often after decades of delivering a contract, um, or they're reducing the service capacity. They can't recruit and train uh, and retain skilled staff. They are often leaving to go and work in Tesco because they get paid more. Um, and those staff that do stay are increasingly burnt out because of the waiting list that they are dealing with. Um, and so we're seeing quality and even safety um, being compromised. Um, so I guess my final two points are, um, there's, there's some things we welcome in the, in, in the procurement bill, in the procurement act. Um, but it's not going to work if government doesn't provide enough funding for public services um, and commissioners then in turn need to be uplifting those grants and contracts um, to cover the true cost of delivering services. Um, but my final point would be, um, and it, it's great to be on this kind of multi-sectoral panel because the level of challenge that society is facing really needs us all to put people and communities into the focus and make sure that we're bringing the strengths of government, of the private sector, of the voluntary sector together so we can tackle those challenges. Thank you. I just want to pick up on some of the um, funding issues because everyone's talked about it in kind of one way or another. Vanessa uh, Neverov, on the kind of creating vibrant competitive markets, to a certain extent, it um, requires offering sufficient funding that uh, more suppliers can are able to take that sort of financial risk to take on those contracts. What's the kind of the current the current government position on that because in the early 2010s for example under Francis Maud in particular there was a lot of sort of driving down on the profit margins of contracts particularly in IT for example what's the current government position now on what a sort of healthy profit is in particular services I don't think you can have a profit right across the board but I would say is that Francis reforms brought in you know, the central procurement effort, which some people have said has actually improved things, and which obviously is the driver behind this procurement bill. And then we, as we move ahead and bring, once it becomes an act, bring in training, <coughs> the sort of considerations that you're talking about are ones that it's very good to have in our minds. And I do think that um, we can spend the money better 
clearly it would be wrong. Hi, hi Bradford. Um, it would be it would be it would be wrong, you know, to say there's lots of extra money available. I mean, obviously, if we can get inflation down, I was very struck by the point that you actually made about inflation and the squeeze of that. That's yet another argument, actually, for getting inflation yeah. down. Um, and then what we have to try and do, you know, I come from the private sector, as everybody knows, and what you've got to try and do is to make sure that the money's going prioritised into the right things and is spent well, and that we stop some of this, the delays that have been mentioned, the bureaucracy that have been mentioned. You know, that could be worth percentage points on the profit margin. I mean, profit margins obviously vary a lot from things, mm -hmm. and there was a, a problem when Francis kept, took over that there was an awful lot of front, you know, front loading of, 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 of incentives to the individual contractors um, and then feathering their nests further down the contract. So there was a big problem and that was addressed. Uh, and I think going forward we need to um, operate on a, you know, a more commercial basis, but bring in people like the voluntary organisations and we see a, a vital part of the mix. Anthony, um, Serco and uh, and others were kind of particularly vocal in the 2010s about, you know, that you might need to kind of stop bidding for particular contracts and services. Do you feel that things are in a more sustainable place now in terms of the types of profits that you're able to generate from those public service contracts? Yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're in a very different place from where we were in uh, in the early 2010s. Um, I think sustainable, profitable growth is shouldn't be seen as, as a bad thing because sustainable, profitable growth allows us to reinvest into innovation and new services um, and new capabilities. As an organisation, we, we've set our strategy of trying to make dizzy heights of uh, margins of around 5%, 5 or 6%, so that's five pence in the pound. This is not gangbuster type mentality where we're trying to get to 40 or 50% margins out of uh, government contracts. We also work with voluntary sectors. We provide grants to voluntary sector organisations, whether it's migrant help, you know, we provide support for migrant help in, um, in the asylum accommodation contract or whether it's with NACRO in our prisons. Uh, our job is to try and bring all of the, what is available support to drive better quality outcomes and impact to the fore of those uh, contracts. Sometimes the contract is limited whereby we're not able to do that. So working with a customer to try and help generate a degree of flexibility in those contracts. Because if you're signing up to a contract that's got a 20 year life and you're only able to reprice it in year 18, you're likely to try and price in all of your risk in years one to 18. Actually, that's not good value for money. So trying to uh, work with a customer, whether it's here or in other countries around the world, to face into some of those challenges, I think are, are really um, helpful and see us doing that. But I, I don't think that for the risks we take, for the investments we have to make, five or 6% return is, is unacceptable. Sarah, clearly there's been a particular issue in the last year or two with very high inflation and um, contracts not being uprated. But do you think that too many charities are bidding too low for work because they know they can subsidise it with charitable income and because it's part of their charitable mission to support the people who are going to benefit from that service. Do you think there are some charities that need to take a more kind of commercial attitude and only bid if they can generate a 5% surplus on something? I mean, charities, as I say, they won't walk away from people if they know that means that people will be left without the safety net and the voluntary sector has increasingly become the safety net. Um, I think there's, there's perhaps some 
some sense in what you're saying in that I think charities perhaps could be um, could be more challenging with commissioners. Um, and actually what I've heard from members in the last year is they are being more tra challenging with commissioners um, because they quite simply can't afford to subsidise to the level that they have been subsidising um, over the last 12 months when with inflation as high as it has been. Um, but I think there's kind of, there's a responsibility on commissioners and on government here too. This can't all be kind of at, at the doors of charities. And, you know, I quite often say, you know, the private sector would simply walk away. They, they wouldn't be able to make the margins that Anthony talked about and they'd simply walk away. And I think with charities, um, yeah, they, they, won't leave, they won't leave communities without anybody else to turn to. Brendan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Well, apologies for being late. I had a nice time standing in the rain for 30 minutes before they'd, before they'd let me in the building. Um, yeah. I, I thought I'd give you an opportunity to catch your breath. Uh, yeah, I, saw, I, thought I did GB News Party last night, so I thought I did really well getting here on time. And then, you know, I did consider outsourcing it, but, you know. Um, but, yeah, I, th I, th I think that's the thing, you know, we, we obviously realise... Um, how important it is that we get this right and we want to get value for money from the taxpayer but as, as you said you know there, there is a consequence of it when it's when it's subsidized and so on and we don't want to push other people out of that market because we want to get the best outcomes later on so i, I think um when lucy and i were working on the procurement bill and the time we did and that i think one of the things that we wanted to consider as well is the impact on smes and letting them get into the the market as well so what we really want is i suppose to maintain that ecosystem where we've got our market functioning properly but from a government perspective we're getting value for money and of course at the moment when i suppose when money's very tight um we always look at how much we're spending we've looked at the expanding size of the civil service and so on and how we can actually get better value doing it elsewhere so it was a very very big bill at the time spent a lot of time going through it when we did but I, I think sort of the outcomes that we'll start seeing I think we'll see a far more uh, sort of fluid situation and hopefully get better value for money for people but it, as you say there is the there is that issue as to what what role does the voluntary sector actually have in that I used to work for the voluntary sector myself and um, certainly all the things that we're doing with agriculture as well at the moment and, and especially some of those charities I think who, who are quite vocal as well at, at various times with us um, and then obviously bigger companies like like Circo who do a lot of work across a lot of different things for us as well. So I think it's get, getting that balance right and of course trying to make sure we get more local companies as well, more smaller companies. But we do have the, the big hitters that are there when we actually need them for the bigger projects who can actually manage things too. Um, I want to talk about a bit about um, implementation of the procurement act. Um, Clearly, the um, procurement practice is quite variable uh, across the, the country uh, at the moment. Um, some organisations do it better than others. And clearly, there are opportunities from the, the new rules, but there are some quite big changes as well. So how do you ensure that, say, particularly kind of local authorities or NHS trusts that have kind of less commercial capacity than a big central government department, how can you, what uh, is the government doing to ensure that they have the kind of the skills and capabilities to make the most of any new flexibilities that they have? Well, I think an important part of implementation will be a training program, centrally led um, with the cabinet office, you know, outfit that I described, very good, then teaching local authorities and then hopefully that will cascade on. So that program, I think, gives us a huge opportunity, particularly, as you said, with the ones who aren't so directly in government and therefore haven't been caught by the reforms. So that's local government. 
I mean, the NHS to some extent, um, and, and Sarah will know this, has a different system so because they have some the contracts, things like con cancer, are under a separate regime. Um, but we've tried to work with them to think about the same sort of principles as well. So that's the answer. I mean, we are already we've already uh, drafted some some of the uh, SIs that are going to come in. I think they're already out to consultation, so you can see the direction of travel. And those of you who know about these things, please give us advice because you can see we're very much in listening mode. Uh, and then there's also going to be a national procurement um, guidance framework, like if you have for flat planning, and that will be coming along as well once you know once we've got the act through. Um, but I mean, I think I, I did the Food Safety Act many years ago because I've been in public life a long time. And you do, the, the implementation is actually almost as important as the bill. Uh, so I think we very much understand yeah. that. We've got, we're going to have a, a, a central unit, um, PIU, where people will be able to bring their complaints. And then if you've got a systematic problem, you know, we'll be able to act to do something about it. So that will hopefully will continue to provide you know, an incentive to keep the improvements going. I mean, yeah, I'm sure there will be some rockiness, but um, I, th I, I think generally this is very much going in the right direction. Right, I'm going to open it up to some um, questions from <laughs> uh, some questions from the audience. Um, so, if you have a question for the panel, can you please uh, raise your hand? Uh, please wait for the microphone to reach you. Uh, please give your name, uh, and also, can I ask that you ensure it's a question and not a very long statement? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, so, gentlemen at the back, please. Hi, uh, Matthew Kilcoyne from Cicero. Um, I was wondering what data will be available where and to, to sort of look at what contracts have been bid for and how competitive they were um, and, you know, for people to be able to not waste their time going for things that aren't competitive in future. Thank you. Um, Brian, I'm going to put that one to you. Yeah. I mean, as I was explaining the, the system is more um, transparent I mean, for the bigger contracts this already exists you know there's an online system and that will be padded out because more people will go onto the online system and people i think it's called trussell or something they 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 get onto the online system and they work out who's winning what contracts and i, mean, I think provide quite a good public, public sector role showing us who's up who's done what's good and what's right so once you've got the data out there there are a lot of people and academics and things who are interested in it. We're, we're also sort of um, requiring, for, certainly not perhaps for the smallest contracts, but K, K, you know, the KPIs to be published. Um, and as with any sort of institution, you, we will be looking at all of that and reporting. I mean, exactly what we'll be reporting on is not yet decided. But clearly, if you've got particular views on things that are of particular interest, that would be good to know as we go forward. Because I like the feedback loop of the system that the transparency brings that should be able to improve things. And just to say, for, I think from our research, I mean, we've done quite a lot of work with some of the data. And as you might know, it can be extremely messy, uh, incomplete at the moment, and requires making quite a lot of uh, assumptions in order to um, draw out any kind of meaningful insight from it. So I think from our perspective, it's about ensuring that it's kind of published consistently. Um, because it's 
most central departments are reasonably good at it, but the further you get from Whitehall, yeah. the, the worse it gets. And that critical point about on, on competition, because all the research shows that the more organisations you have bidding for a contract, the more likely it is that government's going to get better value for money um, from it. Um, and prop payment data is important as well. That's one of the other things I've been involved with over the years. Um, because although it's not perfect, it does encourage people to put prop, prop payment up for agenda. And one of the things Bill does is to encourage, you know, is to require supply, you know, the supply chain to pay properly as well. Because that's been, you know, cash flow. I know this because I got from business. Cash flow for small business is absolutely critical. You can have a very good order book and you can go bust because you haven't got cash flow. And local authorities being some of the worst people actually for, for doing that occasionally. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. well said, Brandon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think um, just to build on, on the Baroness's point there, I think data that is useful and used is the is the key driver here. So there's no point in having copious amounts of data if nobody could understand it, mine it or analyse it, would be my view. Um, I think the, the, the Cabinet Office already do... Um, uh, publish some KPI data at the moment, we would encourage more of it. Of course, I'm gonna sit here and say that I think I preside over an organization that's doing some fabulous things and I'm happy to talk about them and be compared both against the public sector and other private sector providers, providers as well, so long as it's a level playing field. Um, on the prompt payment issue, I review with my finance people every week our prompt payment performance because it's really, really important that we make sure that we're moving that money from uh, from ourselves down into the into the SME supply chain. Um, and, and one of the benefits is the, the government customer pays on time. We have a duty and a responsibility to pass that through to people in the supply chain, but all of that information in some way, shape or form in the main is already generally available. I think we've just got to do more to allow people to access it and analyze it and understand it and use it. And if I might interrupt, the government are actually good payers. Very good. I mean, car for 90 days. Sorry, I used to be in the retail sector. It's a, you know, that is a long time to wait for your money. Sarah, obviously, prompt payment is something that the uh, the government and big suppliers have put a lot of focus on. Have your members seen an improvement in prompt payments? I don't have any data on that I can that I can point to on whether it's necessarily improved, but clearly most charities would be classed as SMEs, and so cash flow absolutely vital. Um, and I think just to go back to the previous question, where my members differ from kind of Anthony's organisation is they don't have huge procurement teams. <laughs> Often they don't even have a procurement person, and so um, having that transparency around kind of notices and um, what the supply and the supply chain is is absolutely vital when you want to engage smaller local trusted organisations in the supply chain. Thank you. I'll go for another round of questions. Uh, gentleman here, and then lady at the back. Uh, here at the front. Thanks very much. Um, my name is Matthew Trimming. I'm senior advisor at Public, which is a, uh, a GovTech venture, which was set up actually to drive more innovation into. Uh, the use of modern technology in public services. We've also done quite a lot of work with Lucy's officials, um, the Baroness's officials, uh, on the procurement bill, which is almost an act. Um, everyone in their own way has sort of talked about competition in markets. Um, you know, you don't always hear a large supplier, like the one that Anthony runs, uh, saying, yeah, give me more competition. But, um, you know, I'd be interested in the panel's thoughts on having the legislations there is great, 
implementation is so important. But what more can be done to sort of drive competition into some of these key markets? You know, you've got Capita, historically would have been a, a good competitor to Serco, but sort of stepping back. You look at software markets in health, in local government planning, in um, uh, ERP, where central government sort of oversold on Oracle. So how can the legislation, its implementation, really sort of spur competition? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and then the lady at the back row. Thank you. <clears throat> Um, Sophie from H Advisors. Um, I was interested in um, what's the future role of uh, ground representatives and what do you see? Of ground representatives? Ground. Ground representatives. Sorry. Crown representatives. Crown representatives. Crown representatives. Sorry. Perfect. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you very much. Um, Brendan, would you like to go first? So what can be done to uh, improve um, competition? Uh, and second, yeah. on the future role of Crown representatives? Um, I mean, I mean, competition. I mean, the, the, the main thing is that you need those multiple players in the market. And I think what you don't want is a situation, again, where people are bidding for contracts. We used to be so focused on price and not always focused on the outcome, I think. And sometimes you, you sort of miss that quality side of it. And there has been the tendency to go for the lower bids. And we've we've learned our lessons with that, I think, over the over, over time. And I think if you want those other players in the market, they need to be able to put forward those good, honest bids and actually be confident that you know they will still have a chance of getting getting that contract if they're not necessarily the cheapest, but sometimes if there's actually more to do with that. So I think in in terms of um, in terms of helping the market out, I'd, I'd say uh, that's that's what I what I would be looking at. And as we were talking about again, SMEs, the bigger companies, making sure that it's accessible to all. So as we were just saying, some some SMEs don't even have a procurement person. So making a system that we've actually got where we can build it in, where they can actually access it for a start, that's automatically going to get you more more competition that's in there. If we have a system that is, is very inaccessible um, and is full of bureaucracy, a lot of people will look at it and you say, you know what, it's actually not worth bidding for this or it's not actually worth going in for it. And, and that is when you do end up having a very, a very small amount of people going into the market. And that's what we didn't want to, we didn't want to do. We wanted to really open it up and, and try and get some more opportunities there. So I would say that's the, that's the main thing really that I, th I think I would say on the competition. Any thoughts on uh, crown reps? Uh, no, not <laughs> I'll leave that one for. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think the crown, that's in a sense for the professional advisors to yeah. tell us if they think that system works. Certainly yeah. on big contracts, it does. But it makes sense. I mean, continuity on the contractor side, particularly if you've got big contracts that are sometimes debated in these sort of places, is very, very important. Uh, and that's one of the problems about the public sector. People do move around more than they do in the private sector, which I sometimes regret. Um, I think the other thing is that if you can make things a bit more accessible and you've got a better idea that you might win the contract, if you're a small supplier to a local authority, for example, which maybe we can do something about in the training, that could bring more people in. I remember when I was at Tesco, I was always being asked to engage in government contracts because they thought, oh, well, Tesco's efficient, it'd be great to have them in the public sector. Then you had a look at what you've got to do and your heart sank. Um, things have improved a lot since then, but there is that got to get confidence that if people put in the resources to do the bidding, it, you know, that so I think again, you've got to have that feedback. Look, people who are coming new to the area, are they 
are they doing the right thing? Are they winning contracts? Are they getting feedback when they lose them? When I rang the Built Environment Committee, local authorities used to pitch in under check the challenge funding. Then again and again they lost, and they hadn't had the feedback that they needed, so they were paying for the bid, not winning a second time. And that kind of thing is very wasteful, and that very bad way of valuing. So there's a there's a crown rep for SMEs in the the voluntary sector. How effective? Um, well, actually, my, my comment was going to be on the Crown Rep is just to pay credit to Claire Dove and your team, um, Baroness Rolf. I think she's a great advocate for the voluntary sector. And actually, probably what we need is kind of more people thinking across about the voluntary sector across Whitehall um, in this context, because, you know, 15 plus billion pounds worth of services being delivered. Um, on the competition question, I suppose I'd like to just give a shout out for the other C, which is collaboration. Um, and how you actually bring the strengths of different organisations together to deliver for communities. And what that needs is kind of culture change. That's not about kind of acts of parliaments or bills. It's about kind of putting purpose and people at the forefront of kind of how we deliver public services, um, rather than focusing so much on kind of the processes. I mean, the current system actually does allow for quite a lot of flexibility, um, but commissioners don't necessarily always use that flexibility. And again, that is about culture change. So yeah, I just give a little shout out for collaboration as well as competition. Anthony. In terms of Crown Rep, I, uh, I speak to ours very regularly. Uh, it's a joyous experience on a weekly basis, um, but uh, but it is really, really important, actually, because they really do hold us to account. So my, I'm, I'm held to account by, by my boss. I feel like I'm held to account by the Crown Rep and by the Cabinet Office and the procurement team, because fundamentally we've promised we're going to deliver something and we need to be held accountable for doing so. Um, in terms of competition, um, I think the healthy competition is absolutely right and Matthew to hear a CEO say I'll have more competition um, is pretty unique but do you know why I want more competition is because it keeps us on our toes it keeps us at the forefront of trying to deliver the outcomes that we've promised the customer that were uh, that were set out, that we set out to do so I'm all for it my challenge would be it needs to be appropriate competition where it makes sense so it would be it would be inefficient for us to have 300 people competing for a contract that probably only 50 people could, could deliver. Um, so I think appropriate competition focused on the areas that they can add biggest value in is really important for us moving forward. So bring it on, I would say. Uh, the, the, t the title of this event is uh, The Future of Government Outsourcing. So I wanted to ask the panel about whether there are areas of uh, public sector work that are currently done in-house and always have been that are new areas that could be outsourced in the future and the reverse are there some things that have been outsourced that you think would be better insourced uh, in the future in terms of you know total government spending on procure wider procurement it's stayed roughly about a third of government spending for about the last 20 years we've obviously had some services like uh, probation the uh, the supervision of low and low risk offenders that was outsourced and has now been brought back in-house. Are there any other areas like that where you think they're kind of new prospects or is it just a case of recontracting existing services? Brendan, I might come to you first. It's, it, it's a tough one, really. I mean, sometimes there's a political decision to be made with that. And as I say, as soon as you touch anything to do with healthcare or anything else, you know, it tends to be a, tends to be a problem. But yeah, um, I mean, probation, I mean, you, you, you'll see hit and miss 
examples with everything. I, th I think I remember the, the early days with Group 4 and so on and, and sort of uh, prisoners absconding and all those things. And then in the end, you know, as it develops, a lot of these partnerships become very successful and we've actually sort of learned lessons over the years. And in, in terms of how it goes in the future, again, I suppose it's, you know, how, how are we going to structure government and how are we going to look at uh, the, the number of people we employ in doing things ourselves and are we really the most efficient ones to do that? Um, I would argue that you know, historically probably we haven't been, but at the same time, as I, I think, it doesn't always it doesn't always work so i think when we do pick where we're we going to do i think the it will be my people will be mindful of what it will look politically if it goes wrong i think is the main thing it's very easy when it's something that's a very plain sort of neutral subject um probation i suppose is a, is a little bit more of a tricky one but then at the same time if you get it right then then nobody notices if you get it wrong then it's always it's the problem you're privatizing everything you're getting rid of everything and, and, and so on so i think just so long as we can keep the conversation sensible on it and and actually you know we we already outsource lots more things than people actually realize it is very much the way that government works we couldn't possibly do everything we want to do without it um, and just getting towards a public perception that actually it's a, it's a partnership model and that's really what we we've always been doing uh, and it's just making better use of that going forward i mean i think there are some areas where perhaps we outsourced um where we could bring in i mean i'm thinking about digital cabinet obviously has a digital service we've had a lot of classical consultants in there we've tried to do is, is to change some of the pay arrangements so that people want to come and work permanently for the civil service in those areas and then you get more continuity so you know i think there can be areas where um outsourcing isn't as cost effective as it might be so um but on the whole i'm very aware that the public sector is, is less productive than the private sector having worked a lot in both of them i can understand why so i think that um, putting things out to tender and obviously allowing the in, in, in sourced well can actually be very fruitful in that way um, and you know the cost base could be different and then if you look at some of the areas of expertise of my experience of local government um, you know some local authorities have taken on things perhaps they shouldn't have and if you're Southwark you've got a very good property outfit they've got a lot of insourced development work and so on they they're a one party state um, so they've been able to do but some other local authorities trying to do things, get into a lot of trouble, lose money for taxpayers, lead to a lot of difficulties. So I think, I think a mixed economy, it, we're, we're better at this actually than a lot of other countries. The, um, the sourcing playbook that the Cabinet Office produces is, has some kind of very uh, good uh, advice on kind of the make or buy decision and the things that commissioners should, uh, should bear in mind. But it often feels that commissioners tend to do what they've always done, whether it's keep a service in-house or keep it outsourced. Do you think, what can what can be done to kind of overcome that sort of innate risk aversion uh, among commissioners who maybe aren't exploring the best way to deliver something? Well, obviously what we did in the 90s, which I referred to history, um, was to ensure that local authorities did tender out. Um, you know, so they weren't just kept in the comfort zone and sort of going to the races. Um, in their spare time, and that um, I think made quite a, quite a change. But it doesn't, you know, it doesn't always work that well. So I, I bring us back to the implementation of this new act. I always think that you can get a lot out of out of, out of transformation and change, 
and that hopefully, you know, we will be uh, talking to local authorities and right across the public sector, and they will be thinking, how can we use this in a different way? And learning from others, because of course, if you bring, I mean, I think Serco probably do this, and so as you said to Sarah, if you bring different sectors together, then you see that they copy each other. Mm. Whereas there tends to be in British life, people tend to be in a, their own little cocoon area. Um, and that is not a good idea, especially on something as, as sort of complex as so. Um, I mean, I think I go back to my last answer, which is kind of if purpose comes first, then process will follow. So, yes, in some cases that might mean insourcing, but in many cases it will be about outsourcing to the right provider. Um, and I think so. charities have certainly told us that um, about services that have been insourced after many years of delivery by the voluntary sector only to see people referred back to the charities because that's where the expertise lies and it kind of goes what goes back to what I said at the beginning about the bridges between statutory services and the community that charities play um, so yeah and then I guess just to be a stuck record on this point like government is getting these services much more cheaply than if they insource them um, from the charities that are delivering communities. Uh, I must say, we did some work on uh, insourcing uh, a few years ago, and from all the local authorities we spoke to, uh, even if they had a kind of strong political desire to insource, the thing they said was, well, we can't afford to uh, at the moment, because actually often when we want to insource is because we want to pay higher wages, etc. And so it's a kind of a choice about which services we insource. There were whatever the kind of the rhetoric actually that they weren't expecting big savings. Yeah, I rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony. So uh, I suppose just to round that one off, there are a few things that I don't think should be outsourced. So uh, there are a whole host of things that are currently insourced that I do think should be outsourced, but there's a few uh, which uh, I don't think. One is military personnel. So the ability and the warrant to take somebody else's life should not be outsourced to anybody other than the state. Uh, judiciary and taking people's uh, liberty away, I don't think should ever be outsourced. You know, the outsourcing of uh, judges or anything like that, uh, or even police officers. Um, but there are a whole host of other things. I think the other thing that is really important here, and, and everybody's made the point, is the cross-sharing of learning. So, for example, with a immigration backlog at the moment, we can provide administrative support to help a decision maker get the right data they need to make a decision. I don't want my people making a decision about whether somebody's granted asylum in this country or not. Um, so there are certain parts of the process where I think outsourcing makes absolute sense to drive innovation and quality and, and better technical performance at lower cost. But there are some things that we just would refuse to do. And I think those are, those are few and far between, but I'm very clear on what they are. What are the services you think should be outsourced? So for example, you know, um, administrative support in things like the immigration backlog in things like how do we look at patient flow in hospitals rather than just having an appointment to see a doctor for an individual how do we get somebody from a diagnostic to a treatment that can be done within 24 hours how do we use the patient flow using our process techniques and mindset that we've learned in other parts of the world so for example how we do healthcare in australia and the US and bring it to the UK for, for the benefit of the citizens, really. So the internet, a bit like Sarah's uh, point earlier, using our international prowess, I think is, is really helpful as well, because what we don't want to do is be insular and say, this is the way we've always done it in this country, and therefore that's the way it should always be. Using some examples from other countries to, to drive innovation, I think is really important. And I know the cabinet officer 
out all of the time trying to find different ways of doing things around the world and I think we've got a part to help them in that. Thank you. Uh, we've probably got time for one or two more questions if there are any. Uh, yes, two more. One there and then one here. Uh, hi, Ben Gadsby, Thurrock Conservatives. Uh, it seems to me one of the really interesting things about all of this with outsourcing is the state and particularly local government's ability to then manage the contracts and, and manage the performance of the suppliers. Uh, and I wonder if the panel has any views on uh, skill level uh, at the moment of people to do that and what we can do to improve the skill level of the people kind of managing the performance of the contractors. Thank you. Uh, and then one at the front here. My name is Jonathan Smith. Uh, I'm from Kettering, but I'm also the trustee of a local charity that provides mental health and supported accommodation. That's where my question sort of comes from. Um, the, the panel has mentioned uh, several times the importance of working together. And one problem we have as a very, very local charity that only covers the Kettering area is that when larger providers, and Circo is, is, is an example of one, that come into the area to deliver national level contracts, the difficulty to communicate between the very large suppliers and the smaller ones can be quite challenging. And, and for example, we've recently had an asylum um, hotel set up in our, our area and trying to get in and communicate with that has it's been quite difficult because I think there's there's a big difference between the very large organisations, how they operate, and the very, very local ones. And I'd be curious to the panel, how do you think that can be improved in terms of the communication between the people who are local on the ground and then the big national needed people who will come in to, do, to deliver this? Perfect. Thank you. So uh, two very good questions there on uh, kind of relationships between bigger suppliers and smaller local ones uh, and the other on the kind of skills and capability of uh, the public sector to manage contracts, which is uh, something that uh, IFG research has also highlighted as a kind of consistent weakness in government uh, contracting practice. Uh, Anthony, I'm going to come to you first. I know you need to run at 9.30 on the dot. Yeah. Um, so thanks very much for the question. I think the so our contract that we have with the Home Office is to provide accommodation, safe and secure accommodation. And then the additional services are contracted directly by the Home Office. So we work with Migrants Help quite a lot. Um, and our local teams try and facilitate all of those conversations and getting people into hotels, etc. Um, but actually, there are some things that we can and can't do because of our, because of our contractual uh, relationship with a customer and those services being procured by by different departments. So, um, but look, where we can provide additional help and support, where we bring a national contract, and it, it's not actually national, it's regionally based. So we look after folks in the Northeast, sorry, in the Northwest and the Midlands and the East of England, um, as well as obviously the Northeast. So um, why don't I just get, why don't we have a conversation separately just to see exactly what the challenge is? And we'll see if we can use that as a case in point to see how we can bring a, a sort of national contract to a local uh, level of implementation if that's okay because i just like to understand some of the some of the challenges there um just going back to the the other question about how do we get local commissioning officers to hold it to account contractors in a in a different way in a more efficient way i think the baroness made the point earlier around how do we how do we train the officials to be able to know what to look for to be able to manage the contracts and work with the contractors where things look like there was some early leading indicators of something that may not go uh, may not be going according to plan and i think that comes down to giving them some guide rails some training and the tools to be able to judge whether there's a short-term issue or whether there's a longer-term trend of something going wrong in that particular contract so i think it comes down to training tools um, and visibility at the end of the day Sarah, on that question of big 
big and small working together. Am I right in thinking interview have done some work on big and small charities and how they can work together in the contracting relationship? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I was going to use that example to answer the question. And so it's not just about large national private providers and small local SMEs. We see this within the voluntary sector. So you've got those very large charities, which actually make up a tiny proportion of the voluntary sector, and then the rest of the sector, which are often small and local. Um, and certainly we do see challenges within that relationship too. Um, and how that plays out in local areas. Um, and I guess I kind of probably go back to my earlier point, which is both have real strengths to bring. So you've got the scale and the brand versus the local knowledge and the kind of trusted connections. Um, and yeah, so we've done a lot of work really around, especially with our larger members around, I guess, kind of how can they be kind of, I guess, systems leaders within the spaces they work in and recognize the value of the local knowledge and then bring that bring that to the table in delivering those services. Um, and again, it comes back to kind of what I've said already. It's all about kind of culture change and, and working differently, um, working collaboratively, putting people at the people at the heart of what you're trying to deliver. Thank you. Brandis Neveroff. I mean, I think I completely agree with the gentleman from Farrakh about skills. Um, and this tends to be a big problem in government in all professional areas. So what you have to try and do is build a, a cadre of professionals. I've been doing the same on fraud, where we set up as the um, but I would, listening to the discussion today, I think the right culture for that card is very, very important. Clearly, we've got a unique opportunity bringing in the procurement bill changes. Um, and those procurers um, have got to lead on, on value for money and on transparency and all the things we're talking about in small business. Um, but it's also got to have the right culture of organisation or we're going to have a problem. So it's very, very, very helpful to have, to have this. And, and, one thing that's come through is this need for communication and collaboration, which obviously, coming from the private sector, I'm extremely aware of. And we used to have something called air traffic control, which is where you brought different bits of the business together routinely to make sure they were listening to each other's problems. Um, and having a little bit more of that in some of these public areas, I think, could be extremely valuable. And your, the resource research you do at the IMD, for which I'm very grateful, can help, I think to bring some of these good practices through. Thank you. Brendan, final word. Uh, finally, uh, the performance management, yeah, obviously we want, want the training to be there. I think a lot of people, recruit, recruitment is a really big issue as well. And I think uh, if you look around the country as well, you'll find specific areas that are really struggling where, where I am. Um, you know, not just performance managers, we, we can look at uh, things like enforcement officers and all of these things. And it, it can be very, very difficult sometimes to get the right people there and you lose them very quickly. So I think a lot of people are reluctant. They'll put all the training in or they'll get the right person. And uh, it, it's a bit like the Richard Branson thing, isn't it? You know, you, well, if you train them so well that they leave and so well, if you don't train them and they stay, that's probably worse. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I mean, and, and in terms of, uh, hotels have been mentioned and so on and I, th I, th I think there's a connection issue there and I think um, just from a purely public point of view as well people like to know who's in charge how do I contact them how do I liaise with them and, and, and so on and at times uh, you know, even from government whether it's national or local you know, there, there is there is the occasional that we'll pass the bucket and not, not my responsibility we've given it to whatever and then obviously the the companies will get the grief, whereas they're not actually the ones who are trying to implement it. They're just the uh, they're just doing their job, so to speak. So I think communication is, is probably the best thing with that. Give people a bit more information. How do you access that system? And if you need to have that conversation, whether you're another business that's involved or whether you're a member of the public, um, yeah, that's that's probably uh, that's probably all I'd say on that.
Perfect. Okay, well, with that, I'm going to uh, bring this uh, event to an end. Uh, for those who want to listen back, the audio for it will be on our website uh, in the next week. Uh, similarly with the audio for all our other events. We have uh, four more events uh, taking place uh, in this room today. Uh, so please do come along to those. Um, finally, um, I hope you'll uh, join me uh, in thanking all the panellists uh, for taking part today. Thank you. from the charities that are delivering communities. Uh, I must say, we did some work on uh, insourcing uh, a few years ago, and from all the local authorities we spoke to, uh, even if they had a kind of strong political desire to insource, the thing they said was, well, we can't afford to uh, at the moment, because actually often when we want to insource, it's because we want to pay higher wages, etc. And so it's a kind of a choice about which services we insource. There were whatever the kind of the rhetoric actually that they weren't expecting big savings. Yeah, I rest my case. <laughs> so, uh, I suppose just to round that one off, there are a few things that I don't think should be outsourced. So, uh, there are a whole host of things that are currently insourced that I do think should be outsourced, but there's a few uh, which I don't think. One is military personnel, so the ability and the warrant to take somebody else's life should not be outsourced to anybody other than the state. Uh, judiciary and taking people's uh, liberty away, I don't think should ever be outsourced. You know, the outsourcing of uh, judges or anything like that, uh, or even police officers. Um, but there are a whole host of other things. I think the other thing that is really important here, and, and everybody's made the point, is the cross-sharing of learning. So, for example, with a immigration backlog at the moment, we can provide administrative support to help a decision maker get the right data they need to make a decision. I don't want my people making a decision about whether somebody's granted asylum in this country or not. Um, so there are certain parts of the process where I think outsourcing makes absolute sense to drive innovation and quality and, and better technical performance at lower cost. But there are some things that we just would refuse to do, and I think those are, those are few and far between, but I'm very clear on what they are. What are the services you think should be outsourced? So, for example, you know, um, administrative support in things like the immigration backlog, in things like how do we look at patient flow in hospitals, rather than just having an appointment to see a doctor for an individual. How do we get somebody from a diagnostic to a treatment that can be done within 24 hours? How do we use the patient flow using our process techniques and mindset that we've learned in other parts of the world? So for example, how we do healthcare in Australia and the US and bring it to the UK for, for the benefit of the citizens really. So the internet, a bit like Sarah's uh, point earlier, using our international prowess I think is, is really helpful as well because what we don't want to do is be insular and say, this is the way we've always done it in this country and therefore that's the way it should always be using some examples from other countries to, to drive innovation, I think is really important. And I know the Cabinet Office are out all of the time trying to find different ways of doing things around the world, and I think we've got a part to help them in that. Thank you. Uh, we've probably got time for one or two more questions, if there are any. Uh, yes, two more, one there and then one here. Uh, hi, Ben Gad to be Thorak Conservatives. Uh, it seems to me one of the really interesting things about all of this with outsourcing is the state and particularly local government's ability to then manage the contracts and, and manage the performance of the suppliers. 
Uh, and I wonder if the panel has any views on uh, skill level uh, at the moment of people to do that and what we can do to improve the skill level of the people kind of managing the performance of the contractors. Thank you. Uh, and then one at the front here. My name is Jonathan Smith. Uh, I'm from Kettering, but I'm also the trustee of a local charity that provides mental health and supported accommodation. That's where my question sort of comes from. Um, the, the panel has mentioned uh, several times the importance of working together. And one problem we have as a very, very local charity that only covers the Kettering area is that when larger providers, and Circo is, is, is an example of one, that come into the area to deliver national level contracts, the difficulty to communicate between the very large suppliers and the smaller ones can be quite challenging. And, and for example, we've recently had an asylum um, hotel set up in our, our area, and trying to get in and communicate with that has it's been quite difficult because I think there's, there's a big difference between the very large organisations, how they operate, and a very, very local ones. And I'd be curious to the panel, how do you think that can be improved in terms of the communication between the people who are local on the ground and then the big national needed people who will come in to, do, to deliver this? Perfect. Thank you. So uh, two very good questions there on uh, kind of relationships between bigger suppliers and smaller local ones, uh, and on the other on the kind of skills and capability of uh, the public sector to manage contracts, which is uh, something that... Uh, IFG research is also highlighted as a kind of consistent weakness in government uh, contracting practice. Uh, Anthony, I'm going to come to you first. I know you need to run at 9.30 on the dot. Yeah, um, so thanks very much for the question. I think the, so our contract that we have with the Home Office is to provide accommodation, safe and secure accommodation, and then the additional services are contracted directly by the Home Office, so we work with Migrants Help quite a lot, um, and our local teams try and facilitate all of those conversations and getting people into hotels etc um, but actually there are some things that we can and can't do because of our because of our contractual uh, relationship with a customer and those services being procured by by different departments so um, but look where we can provide additional help and support where we bring a national contract and it, it's not actually national it's regionally based so we look after folks in the northeast sorry in the northwest and the midlands and the east of england um, as well as obviously the northeast so um, why don't i just get why don't we have a conversation separately just to see exactly what the challenge is and we'll see if we can use that as a case in point to see how we can bring a, a sort of national contract to a local uh, level of implementation if that's okay because I just like to understand some of the some of the challenges there um, just going back to the the other question about how do we get local commissioning officers to hold it to account contractors in a, in a different way in a more efficient way I think the Baroness made the point earlier around how do we how do we train the officials to be able to know what to look for to be able to manage the contracts and work with the contractors where things look like there was some early leading indicators of something that may not go uh, may not be going according to plan and I think that comes down to giving them some guide rails some training and the tools to be able to judge whether there's a short-term issue or whether there's a longer-term trend of something going wrong in that particular contract. So I think it comes down to training tools um, and visibility at the end of the day. Sarah, on that question of big, uh, big and small working together, am I right in thinking interview have done some work on big and small charities and how they can work together in the contracting relationship? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I was going to use that example to answer the question. And so it's not just about large national private providers and small local SMEs, we see this within the voluntary sector. So you've got those very large charities which actually make up a tiny proportion of the voluntary sector and then the rest of the sector which are often small and local. Um, and certainly we do see challenges within that relationship too. 
um, and how that plays out in local areas. Um, and I guess I kind of probably go back to my earlier point, which is both have real strengths to bring. So you've got the scale and the brand versus the local knowledge and the kind of trusted connections. Um, and yes, yeah, so we've done a lot of work really around, especially with our larger members, around I guess kind of how can they be kind of I guess systems leaders within the spaces they work in and recognise the value of the local knowledge and then bring that bring that to the table in delivering their services. Um, and again, it comes back to kind of what I've said already. It's all about kind of culture change and, and working differently, um, working collaboratively, putting people at the people at the heart of what you're trying to deliver. Thank you, Brandis Neveroff. I mean, I think I completely agree with the gentleman from Thurrock about skills. Um, and this tends to be a big problem in government in all professional areas. So what you have to try and do is build a, a cadre of professionals. I've been doing the same on fraud, where we set up a civil authority. Um, but I, listening to the discussion today, I think the right culture for that cadre is very, very important. Clearly, we've got a unique opportunity bringing in the procurement bill changes. Um, and those procurers um, have got to lead on value for money and on transparency and all the things we're talking about in small business. Um, but it's also got to have the right culture of organisation or we're going to have a problem. So it's very, very, very helpful to have, to have this. And, and one thing that's come through is this need for communication and collaboration, which obviously coming from the private sector I'm extremely aware of. And we used to have something called air traffic control, which is where you brought different bits of the business together routinely to make sure they were listening to each other's problems. Um, and having a little bit more of that in some of these public areas, I think, could be extremely valuable. And your, the resource research you do at the IFG, which I'm very grateful, ha can help, I think, to bring some of these good practices through. Thank you. Brendan, final word. Uh, finally, uh, the performance management, yeah, obviously we want, want the training to be there. I think a lot of people, recruit, recruitment is a really big issue as well, and I think uh, if you look around the country as well, you'll find specific areas that are really struggling with where I am, um, you know, not just performance managers, we, we can look at uh, things like enforcement officers and all of these things. And it, it can be very, very difficult sometimes to get the right people there and you lose them very quickly. So I think a lot of people are reluctant. They'll put all the training in or they'll get the right person. And uh, it, it's a bit like the Richard Branson thing, isn't it? You know, you, well, if you train them so well that they leave and so what well, if you don't train them and they stay, that's probably worse. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I mean, and, and, and in terms of, uh, hotels have been mentioned and so on and I, th I, th I think there's a connection issue there and I think um, just from a purely public point of view as well people like to know who's in charge how do I contact them, how do I liaise with them and, and, and so on and at times uh, even from government whether it's national or local you know, there, there, is, there is the occasional that will pass the bucket, not, not my responsibility we've given it to whatever and then obviously the the companies will get the grief, whereas they're not actually the ones who are trying to implement it. They're just the uh, they're just doing their job, so to speak. So I think communication is, is probably the best thing with that. Give people a bit more information. You know, how do you access that system? And if you need to have that conversation, whether you're another business that's involved or whether you're a member of the public, um, yeah, that's that's probably uh, that's probably all I'd say about that. Perfect. Okay, well, with that, I'm going to uh, bring this uh, event to an end. Uh, for those who want to listen back, the audio for it will be on our website uh, in the next week. Uh, similarly with the audio for all our other events. We have uh, four more events uh, taking place uh, in this room today. Uh, so please do come along to those. Um, finally, um, I hope you'll uh, join me uh, in thanking all the panellists uh, for taking part today. Thank you. Thank you.